this is what it looks like to do hard things. Like it's not roses all the time. Um, it sucks sometimes, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. And that doesn't mean that it's going to be amazing. It's like, that's why you do it because you go to these places, these extreme joys, these extreme moments of difficulty. And that's what brings meaning to your life. And that's what helps you move forward through your life whenever you go home. This is the Plant Fueled Podcast. My name is Cass Warbeck. I'm a medical student, plant-based athlete, and vegan lifestyle advocate. This podcast is all about bringing you conversations to optimize your health and elevate your performance. Hey everyone, welcome back or welcome to my podcast. Before we get into it, just a quick shout out to my show sponsor, Warlock Golf. It's a calm autumn morning, sun beams through the trees, the fall colors contrasting with the bright blue sky. A couple of Canadian geese glide swiftly through the light breeze, landing awkwardly on a nearby pond. Unfortunately, you're not enjoying any of this because you're playing golf. They say golf is a nice walk ruined, but not when you are using golf accessories from warlockgolf.com. Warlock Golf is a Canadian-based company rooted in small-town Manitoba that understands that golf is supposed to be fun. That's why they offer a variety of -of one-of-a-kind ball markers and golf accessories that'll add some serious style to your game. Add some fun back into your game by visiting warlockgolf.com and using discount code PLANT15 for 15% off your order. That's code PLANT15 for 15% off your order at warlockgolf.com. Okay, so I'm really excited to introduce my guest today as she is someone who has been an inspiration to me over the last few years. Joining me is Sonia Looney, one of the world's best endurance mountain bikers. She has raced her bike across the world in some of the hardest endurance races in places like the Sahara Desert and the Himalayas of Nepal, and in 2015 became the 24-hour mountain bike world champion. Not only is she a world champion athlete, but she is also a health and mental performance coach, keynote speaker, professional writer and blogger, and host of the popular podcast, The Sonia Looney Show. Although she balances many different identities, she is probably most well-known for her ability to help people learn how to build a resilient inner narrative using positive psychology, mental toughness, and mindfulness-based techniques. Today, we explore some of the mental toughness strategies she has learned through her adventures and some strategies you can apply to your own life. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it on social media and tag myself and Sonia to connect and let us know. Enjoy. Sonia, it's so good to have you here. I've been listening to your podcast for years, so it's an honor to actually be interviewing you. Well, that's hugely uh, flattering that you listen to my podcast. (laughs) So there's so much I want to talk about. But first, can you tell me how you initially got into mountain biking? It's so funny. Um, A lot of times when people see a professional athlete, they think that it's something you've been doing your whole life. But I actually got into mountain biking almost by accident. Um, Long story short, I played other sports growing up. Uh, I wanted to be a pro soccer player and a pro tennis player, but obviously none of that panned out. And I wanted to run a marathon and I ran my first marathon at 18 and then again at 19, but I didn't know how to train properly for running. Cause I just, I'd never done endurance sports before. So I kept getting these little nagging injuries. So I go to spin class at the gym as cross training. And I just really enjoyed going to that Sunday spin class. And then some guys from my work invited me to go mountain biking. I was a, an engineering student intern at the time. And so I was like, sure. Uh, I think we have a mountain bike in our shed at my parents' house. So I dug this old bike out of the shed and, um, went mountain biking with them. And then just a few weeks later I did my first race and the rest is sort of history. And that was like in 2003. (laughs) It's been a pretty incredible upward trajectory since then. Um, so I'd like to touch back on, you mentioned you, um, were working as an intern for electrical engineering, and I believe you have your master's in electrical engineering, right? Mm Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. So I can only imagine like the courage it took to make the leap into mountain biking after years of school and having a stable career as an engineer. Can you walk us through like what went through your head making that decision? Yeah, actually it wasn't um, a hard decision, which it might sound like it was for a lot of people, because a lot of times you get so invested in the, the time that you spent and that's actually called the sunk cost fallacy. Like there's a sunk cost of the time or energy or money you spent doing something. And because of that, people are afraid to make changes, even if they're, they feel like they're in the wrong place. But for me, I always just sort of felt like engineering wasn't the right thing. Like I was in engineering school and I, I liked academia. I liked the challenge of school, but I didn't really like engineering, but I didn't really know what else to do. So I just kept moving forward. And I decided to go to graduate school because I had just found mountain biking at the end of college. And I really wanted a chance to become a pro mountain biker and to race. And I knew that going to grad school, while it's not easy going to grad school for engineering, I knew that it would allow me the flexibility that I needed to train in the middle of the day. Whereas if I got a job as an engineer working a nine to five, I might not have that flexibility. So I sort of chose to go to grad school for the flexibility and the lifestyle of it and hoped that I would figure it out later. So I was actually working as a solar engineer um, after grad school for a startup. And I had taken that job uh, saying, hey, like I really want the flexibility to train. That's my number one like out of work priority. So as long as you can afford me that, um, you know, they, they so they hired me as a contractor. So I didn't have benefits and all those things. And it's just, yeah, it's a little bit longer of a story whenever I became like a full-time pro. But from there, I thought, I really don't like engineering. What am I going to do? And I did one of those uh, career profiling tests, which I probably should have done a lot earlier. And it, it, engineering was one of the last things on that list I should be doing, engineering and accounting. And it was working with people and helping people get healthier that popped up as number one. So I thought, well, maybe I'll become a, a medical doctor or a physician's assistant. So I went back to school and I did all the pre-med rec, uh, prerequisites. I did all the volunteer work. I picked some schools that I was going to apply for. And I decided at this point, physician's assistant, because I didn't want to invest you know, a whole other <laughs> career in school. Um, and then my bike racing started going well and I was racing professionally at this point, but not getting paid to ride my bike. You know, most pros, um, actually don't get paid to ride. They have to work a full-time job and they race. Um, but then another opportunity came up and it was to do sales and marketing for a brand in the bike industry, which was a major career pivot from what I was doing, but it was, it just felt right. It felt like the right direction. Um, I had no background in sales and marketing other than my own, you know, being a sponsored athlete. But I thought I can figure this out as I go. And that confidence came from running my first marathon. It came from completing, you know, years of school. Confidence was built on lots of past positive experiences. So that gave me the, the encouragement to say, okay, I can go figure this out. So I started doing that and I did that for five years. And I was on a team that was associated with the company that I worked with. And I still wasn't getting paid to ride my bike and my entry fees weren't even paid for at this point. But then brands started approaching me, wanting to pay me, um, to be associated with them. And my racing was going even better. So I had to decide like to quit my job and to write my own proposals to go try to be like a quote paid full-time professional athlete. And, um, I had just met my husband at the time, uh, maybe a year before that. And he's like, look, like you, you got to go for it. And just having that little gentle nudge from him was enough to push me over the edge. And I did that. And that was in 2014. And I've been doing that ever since. Wow. That's actually an incredible story. And I think 
I'm glad you went through all the steps of it because I think so often people just assume like you went from A to B, but as you're telling the story, there were so many little decisions and little different pathways you took that ultimately got you to where you are. Um, So I'm wondering, like, how would you generalize like your experience going through all that to someone else that's maybe stuck somewhere they don't want to be, but they're scared of taking that risk to pursue what they might be more passionate about? I've been trying to think about that so that I can distill it down into a few words for somebody. And it's having the courage to explore your curiosity and take action on that. And it's scary to do that because you don't know what's going to happen. Um, you worry that you can't ever go back, but do you really want to go back once you've like un- unlocked this part of yourself and you've discovered that, Hey, I-, I really feel like there's more out there. Like if you have spent your whole life thinking there's more out there for me, but I'm never going to explore it. Like you're going to always have that nagging feeling. So having the courage to go explore knowing that, yeah, you might be able to go back, but you probably won't want to, and that it's okay for it not to go perfectly. It's okay for it to take a long time to get to where you want. Um, In fact, expect it to take a long time. Expect the work to be the most meaningful part of the journey and not the label or the outcome or the achievement. That's great advice. And I'd I'd love to dive into that a bit more, especially like the the outcome and the achievement part of it. But before, I think it would be really great to hear some of um, a bit about your adventures as a mountain bike athlete. And I know you've had many um, and we don't have time to talk about them all, but I'd love to hear a little bit about the yak attack race um, in Nepal, because I think you did it in 2012, I believe. And I was watching some like promo videos for it and it's insane. Like it's an absolutely insane endurance race. And um, yeah, can you just share a little bit about what that was like for you? Yeah. So I did it in 2012 um, and also in 2013 and it was, it sounds like so long ago now and it was, but it was the first time I had done anything that was really quote extreme, I guess. And for those listening who don't know what it is, it's a 10 day mountain bike stage race in Nepal in the Himalaya. It's the highest mountain bike race in the world. Uh, it's a very small race. It's like, I don't know how many people they let in now, but I think at the time they only would let in 60 people and you'd have to submit a resume because like, if something happens to you out there, like there isn't really a mechanic to help you fix your bike. Um, if you don't have the endurance or the skill or, or, you know, all the things involved in mountain bike racing, um, there isn't a lot of options. There isn't a car that you can just crawl into that will drive you back to Kathmandu. Like you'd have to hike back down this trail with your bike, uh, by yourself. So I was really intimidated to do this race because at this point I, um, I had just gotten into hundred mile mountain bike racing from, you know, 20 typical 20 mile cross country, which is the Olympic distance. So like in 2009, 2010, I started doing endurance racing. And then I did my first stage race, which is a multi-day race where it's like mountain bike tour de France, basically. And I'd only done two stage races before this event. Um, the second one was in Brazil. So that helped with again, confidence going somewhere different. Um, but I went with somebody. So yeah, you were out, I was out there by myself. It was a 10 day mountain bike race. And of course I saw people at the end of the day, cause it was a set start and finish every day, but there's lots of unknowns. Like what's like, what if I get sick because you're in a third world country? Um, a lot of people do get sick in this race and have to drop out. What happens if I get altitude sickness? And even though I lived at Colorado in Colorado, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter where you live. You can get altitude sickness and the race peaked out at almost 18,000 feet of elevation. What if my bike breaks? There's just all these different unknowns along the way. But the reason why I wanted to do it is because no woman had ever done this race before. And I just I don't know why I decided I just needed to do it. And I was so excited and everybody thought I was crazy, 
But it was a life-changing experience for me because it taught me that there is a lot more out there for me if I only have the courage to try. And the first time I did the race, it didn't go perfectly well. In fact, I made it to day nine out of 10. I did a a TED talk about this, TEDx talk. Um, my brakes failed at the top of this pass at almost 18,000 feet and mountain bikes have hydraulic disc brakes like your car. Nobody's product testing disc brakes at 18,000 feet because why on earth would anybody go up to 18,000 feet with a bike? Because you have to hike your bike through the snow, uh, in order to get there. So I had to walk my bike down the back of this mountain pass. I was winning the race, um, by a large margin. So that helped a little bit, but people were just blowing by me on their bikes, having the best time in the world. And I didn't even know if I was going to be able to finish the race because like I mentioned, there's no mechanic, there's no bike shop, there's no way to replace my brakes, but I got lucky. And because I chose to keep going, um, somebody else's misfortune became my luck. Uh, they quit the race. So I was able to borrow the brakes off of their bike and finish the last day and still win the race. And because of that, I really wanted to go back and do it again. So I went back the next year and and did it. And I would love to go back, um, sometime again soon, because it was just such a unique experience to see the world in that way, to see places that don't have a Starbucks on every corner, like lots of third world countries you go to will have a Starbucks on every corner. And it was just completely an authentic culture and just seeing the way that people lived. And it was just so beautiful to be there. Yeah. I can't imagine it looks like, um, an incredible country and landscape. And, um, for those that haven't seen any videos, I haven't watched any of it. Um, like there's sections, you're literally hiking with your bike on your back. Like it's, it's insane. <laughs> um, so when I'm curious when your brakes or brakes stopped working and I know like say the Ted, um, Ted talk you did on this will be linked below in the show notes, but what was going through your head in that moment? And how did you, I guess, overcome that adversity and keep going? Because I'm sure like if your brakes, brakes broke, like, um, wanting to quit is probably going through your mind. Yeah. Well, um, I think that I was unable to quit in the moment. Number one, mm-hmm. um, not that I, I don't quit races. So, and a quitting is a muscle. If you tend to quit something, you keep quitting and it makes it a lot easier to keep doing it. So strengthening that grit muscle of not quitting was really helpful uh, by that point. But the only way to even get anywhere was to keep, keep going forward. And at some point I would have been able to find somebody cause you were, you were eventually getting down to these villages, but I thought I've already come this far. I might as well keep going. Um, but it sucked. Like I was crying. I was angry. Um, in a moment of, I don't know, cre- <laughs> I don't know why I decided to do this, but I took my camera out and I took a video of myself crying and being angry. Cause I promised myself I would document that this experience. And again, this was in 2012. This wasn't like Instagram days or anything like that. I just really wanted to document this experience. And that was a really big deal for me to actually publish that video in the Ted talk, because even like my husband is pretty much the only adult who's ever seen me cry in my adult life. Like I just don't like doing that in front of other people. So showing that vulnerability was really scary, but I wanted to show people like, this is what it looks like to do hard things. Like it's not roses all the time. Um, it sucks sometimes, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. And that doesn't mean that it's going to be amazing. It's like, that's why you do it because you go to these places, these extreme joys, these extreme moments of difficulty. And that's what brings meaning to your life. And that's what helps you move forward through your life whenever you go home. So in that moment, I was thinking, I just, I I'm going to embrace the suck. This this, this is horrible, but it's not going to last forever. Remembering that nothing is permanent. Uh, really helps when things are really hard and thinking big picture is really helpful when things are hard. And yeah, I'm just going to keep going and eventually I'll get there and I'll just have to deal with what come what may whenever I get there. But for now I need to just focus on one foot in front of the other. 
that makes perfect sense, actually. And I like a lot of things you said there. Um, one specifically is that um, not quitting is a muscle and that you can actually develop this like resiliency over time. And I know you talk a lot about this, but um, I think a lot of people believe that you're either born with this ability to push through and endure or you're not. And um, you're a big proponent of that you can get better at this over time and um, your ability to push through and push through when things are hard can like improve over time. Um, so is this something that like, how do you develop this or do you just need to put yourself in these hard situations and get through them and look back on them later? Do you know what I'm asking? Yeah. So you certainly don't have to go to Nepal and have your brakes <laughs> burn out at 18,000 feet to uh, <laughs> be able to work no. on your resilience. Um, yeah. Resilience is a mental skill. It's There's also a psychological framework around building resilience. And it starts with noticing during your day, whenever you practice that. So when did an adversity come up? It could be something as simple as your kid was crying at the grocery store and you felt frustrated and you got through it. Like, what did you do to get through it? And what was your mental state to get through it? What, what things did you say to your self to get through it. Um, and just starting to be focused on all of the times where you built that, that courage and that, um, stick to itness to keep going. And you can actually write it down. Like if you have an adversity, write down the adversity, write down the belief about the adversity. What is the consequence of that belief? Cause sometimes that belief is not true. Like maybe, um, your brakes. So my brakes could have gone out and I could have said, well, um, you know, game over, I have to quit which I did think at the time, but then I asked myself, is this true? And that's how I came up with another solution of, well, somebody else quit the race so I can borrow their brakes. So you can use this in anything. This is called the ABCs of resilience. And then, um, ask yourself what, what else could you believe about what just happened? And is that true? And how could you move forward with that? So that could be a way to get through the, in the thick of it when you want to quit, but you have to practice that before you get to these really difficult situations. And another way to think about this is think about anything in your life that you're super proud of. I'll just give the listener a second, like think about something that just makes you so excited that you did it. And I guarantee you that it wasn't something easy. It was probably something that you had to work hard for. And it was something where it kind of really tested you. And there were times you wanted to quit and you didn't. And that's why that thing means so much to you is because you had to put yourself out there to do that. So starting to focus on those things and that it's okay to have feelings of wanting to quit. Like I'll be winning a race and I still want to quit the race. Like it's normal to want to quit. Um, so accepting that, and that doesn't mean that you're broken. It doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. Uh, and just realizing that, Hey, like this is part of the journey and this is exciting. And once I put, keep pushing through this again, the impermanent impermanence of this situation, it's going to make me that much stronger for next time. And then the next time you do something hard, you'll remember that hard thing that you just did and that you were able to push through that. And I'll give you a little bit of extra gas to keep going. But when you do quit, like there will be times where like, maybe you just gave up and that's, you know, give yourself a little bit of self-compassion in that moment and, you know, don't beat yourself up and just take the steps moving forward so that it doesn't happen again. Some of the things we just talked about, or there's times you should quit, like where your health is at stake, or you just physically cannot go on. Maybe your bike broke or, you know, and these are just biking examples, but just apply them to your life in whatever way it makes sense. There's times where you do need to give up and you do need to take that break. Um, and so again, coming back to giving yourself the grace, but it, it takes some wisdom to know when is it appropriate to quit and when is it not appropriate to quit. And I would actually say that for me, I, sometimes lack the wisdom. There are times I should have quit events and done, I've done dumb things where I should not have kept going because it could have been dangerous for me. Um, so that's something that I'm working on too. <laughs> 
thank you for sharing that. And um, I'm glad you brought that up actually. Um, and I'd like to maybe transition to something else a little bit related is just like overall failure. And I guess quitting is one thing um, and knowing when to quit is another, but then striving to achieve something and not getting there and not getting it is something else. So do you have any advice for um, people, I guess, overcoming failure, um, whether it's in sport or in life? Yeah. So expect failure. I, I heard somebody say this and they said the best achievers in the world have failed their way to the top. And the reason why they are at the top is because they just didn't quit when they kept failing at something. And just changing your, your frame of mind around this, because a lot of times we think, well, failure is proof that I'm not good enough. Failure is validating that this isn't meant to be. Um, it doesn't mean that you have to enjoy failure. Nobody enjoys that feeling of coming up short, but accepting that like the setback is part of the path and it isn't a divergence from the path can really help. Um, realizing that you're not alone whenever those things happen. And that if you're failing, that's like proof that you're trying. And these all sound like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Whatever. But you know, I'm afraid I, I literally am afraid to try because I'm afraid to fail. Well, it's like, what are you putting your success, your definition of success on? Is it success is only if I achieve this outcome? Because a lot of times the outcome is out of your control. Like you can work as hard as possible. You can be the best at something. And that doesn't guarantee that you're going to quote win or be successful in that thing that you're doing. So it's really your daily actions that make you a success. And it's the person that you become and the identity that you're trying to continue to build in, um, as you work towards this thing. So like if your, your goal is to run a marathon, well, you're going to probably be doing the work every single day to run this marathon and something could, could happen on race day. Something like maybe you have like a stomach problem or maybe like you get an injury Maybe you just get so lost on the course, which I don't think happens in road running as much, but just come up with an example. That doesn't mean that you're a failure. It just means that that one day things didn't work out, but all the things that you did preparing yourself for this thing, like that's what really matters. And it could happen with an exam at school. You could prepare the best. You could work so hard for this exam, but the day comes up and maybe you just choke, or maybe you like, you just have a bad day. And Again, coming back to that self-compassion and giving yourself the grace that, okay, this is one data point. I'm doing all this work. I'm going to have the courage to show up next time and I am going to get better. And sometimes you have to step, like take back steps before you can take forward steps. And yeah, so long story long, failure is part of the journey. Look at it as just a data point, not an end point, And that'll help you keep going. Thank you. And I like what you brought up there is about also defining your identity by more than just what you're accomplishing. Because I think so often, especially today, we get tied up and we have to have these certain successes to be have self-worth and all this. And I think that's personally, that's took me a while to figure out because I, when approaching all my Muay Thai fights, I would get so anxious and it took me a while to realize like no one actually cared if I won or lost. It's about ultimately like training for it. You'll be better regardless of the outcome and no one's going to love me any different. So you have so much going on in your life. Um, you're a professional athlete, entrepreneur, you're a health coach, um, just to name a few but you also have a family. And I've heard you talk before about rather than striving for balance in all these different areas of your life, that it's more about trying to achieve like intentional imbalance. And I'd really love to hear you elaborate on this because I think it's something important that more people need to hear. Yeah. Uh, I'm so glad you brought that up because balance doesn't exist. Like thinking, okay, I'm going to have 10% here, 10% here, 10% there. Like that's just not sustainable. And you're probably not going to feel very good about what you're doing. If you're just like, like 
dissecting yourself in a number of different ways. So there's going to be times you could, you could look at it within your day. You could look at it within, you know, a period of time, but just choose to be intentional with how you spend your time. So instead of like trying to divide yourself up in tons of different ways, like I'm going to spend the entire morning. If I, if that, if I have the support and the luxury to do that, being focused on just one thing. And the reason why I kind of came up with this intentional imbalance and trying to be focused on one thing for, for periods of time is because there's this, uh, theory in positive psychology, psychology called the authentic theory of happiness and concentration is one of the tenets of this theory and feeling like you're in the present moment and doing concentrated work actually get, brings you joy and it makes you feel good. And we don't like being torn in a thousand different directions. So if you can just take moments, it doesn't have to be hours, just moments of concentrated time where you're being intentional with how you spend that time that can be really helpful for achieving your goals. It's a lot harder when you have kids. Um, I will say I have a one and a half year old and we have another, I just announced this. We have another kid on the way. So it's very challenging. Um, but yeah, just like thinking, okay, like I'm a, I'm a professional athlete and I'm an, I'm an entrepreneur. So there are times periods where I have to be very focused and make training my number one priority over everything else. And then there's other times where training might not be my number one priority. It might be, you know, focusing on, um, business planning or batch recording tons of podcasts. Um, and more recently, my number one priority is my child and I'm the primary caregiver. We don't have any childcare at the moment. Um, something we're hoping to rectify, but I have about an hour and a half a day to work. And it's crazy whenever I think about that, because I used to work like 10 to 12 hours a day, but I'm so efficient with that time. I am very intentional with how I spend that time. And my life is completely out of balance. I'm spending a lot of time being a mom. I'm spending a little bit of time training and I'm spending even less time working, but I know that that's temporary. And I, and I'm, I'm intentionally making this choice and I'm going to be happy about that choice in the future. That's advice. that's actually helped me like hearing you talk about this. I've applied to my own life and it's been super useful. So thank you for explaining that. Um, How have you applied that to your own life? Um, just like, especially fight camps coming up where it's like six weeks of very concentrated training. I know I won't be seeing my friends or family much during that, um, that time. And then I guess like right now I'm in medical school, I've just started a clerkship and my time for training has been decreased to, um, the hours of the morning, it's still dark out. And it's just about trying to figure out what's my main focus right now. And knowing that like, okay, this next year is going to be hard for me. I'm not going to be able to spend as much time training or I'm not going to be able to compete, but hopefully like the future that it'll shift a bit. And again, hearing you talk about that's been very helpful. One thing I'd like to ask though, is where does sleep like fall in your priorities here? Like my a question would be like, if you had the choice of getting an extra hour of sleep or waking up earlier and fitting a workout in, how do you, um, figure out that decision? I'm so glad that you asked that question because I've been thinking about the order in which all of these different priorities in life need to go, um, in terms of taking care of yourself. Cause I am a health coach. A huge part of my coaching practice is looking at all these different areas of what makes somebody healthy and yeah, sleep, exercise, food, but also compassionate self-awareness, your mindset, your relationships, your environment. It's a lot of different things that make up health. So I thought to myself, what is at the base foundation of this? Like how would they're all interconnected? They're not mutually exclusive, but I say that sleep is the number one priority. If I look at my actions over the years, sleep has always been my number one priority. I'll choose sleep over watching another Netflix show. I'll choose sleep over seeing friends. I'll choose sleep over getting up early and doing an extra workout in the morning or so 
like you can skimp on sleep maybe once during the week and do that because if it comes down to not working out at all or, you know, doing that one workout, there are times like, again, it's not black and white. There's nuance there, but prioritizing sleep over a workout, like if you're not recovered, then you're not going to be able to get bang for your buck from that workout. So it's almost like a waste of time. So how else can you shift your schedule around? Um, so that you can get that extra hour of sleep and you can still get that workout in because there's a lot of time that we spend during our day, as I've learned, wasting time or just, you don't even realize that you're wasting time and you could spend that time doing something else or just being a little bit more efficient so that you have time to sleep and you have time to exercise. Okay, good. I will keep that in mind. And I hope everyone listening does too. I feel slowly the, um, the conversation around sleep is changing and I think people are prioritizing it more now than we used to, but I think there's still room for improvement there. Yeah. I think that a lot of people used to wear it as a badge of honor. Like I only slept four hours last night and there's some serious health implications as a, a, uh, you know, in medical school, you know, that very, very well. And as an athlete, I'm sure you also know that very well. Like when you're tired, you just can't perform well. And it's not just the performative effects of lack of sleep. It's like, if, if you're not rested, you can't even make good decisions about things like food or things like, you know, how you're going to show up. And we all know when you're tired, like life just feels so much harder in so many different ways. So if you can strengthen that foundation of sleep, it makes everything else, like it lubes all the other decisions that you need to make in your life. It makes it easier. Yeah, very true. And so that kind of rolls into something else I wanted to ask you about and being well, like well rested and everything helps with this. Um, but it's, being consistent um, over the long term. And I think a lot of the time people set these goals and they're really great for a week or two and then they kind of peter out and it's harder to get up in the morning and do what you said you were going to do a week ago. So do you have any suggestions for people that just can't be consistent over the long term, but they have goals they want to work towards? Yes, I have a lot of things to say about that. Um, it's fun because that's something I've been passionate about studying on my own. And then health coaching is all about helping people achieve their goals. Like that is the number one thing that you're doing. And the biggest issue with goal setting is that people often will set a goal that's almost too big. And it's good to have, like you always hear big, hairy, audacious goal, like set this huge goal. And it's good to have that as like a goal post or just something down the road that you want to work towards. But if it feels too big, then you're going to have a really hard time staying consistent with it. So it's again, setting very small action steps for every single day or every single week that feel achievable. So like in health coaching, we actually assess confidence. Like when you set this, this weekly goal, on a scale of zero to 10, how confident do you feel that you can achieve that? And it needs to be over a seven. Otherwise they're probably not going to be successful in achieving that, that small goal. And those small goals are like, you're trying to build a, a skyscraper, but you have to build it brick by brick and you have to make each brick attainable. Otherwise you're not going to be able to build the skyscraper. You're not going to build a skyscraper missing bricks. So set a goal that feels, especially at the start, that feels like dumb. It's so easy. And commit to like the five, like the five second rule or the five minute rule, whatever you want to call it. Like for me, uh, being pregnant the first time helped me, um, have more clarity around this because when you're pregnant, you don't want to go out and exercise. And there are, again, there are times where you shouldn't, but it's just the last thing you feel like doing. You're tired. Like it's just not as fun because of how your body is. So I said, I'm just going to give myself the chance. I'm going to go out for five minutes. And if I don't want to do it, then I'll turn around and go home. 
So you can do this with any goal um, and, and set it like it could be even less than five minutes. It could be one minute, but often it's like the activation energy to get started. That's the hardest part. It's like you just, if you could just get started, then you might actually keep going. You can do it with writing. You could do this with anything. And so showing up is the goal, not going out and doing an interval workout for two hours or writing a book or, you know, whatever the huge goal is. It's like, make your goal show up and do five minutes. And once you can start doing that consistently, then you can start building upon that. Okay. That's really good. And I think, um, along with that, a lot of the time, like remembering how you feel afterwards as well. Um, because usually like you always feel better (laughs) after (laughs) you work out or after you accomplish something than you did when you started, even if you don't want to. So maybe remembering that as well. Yeah. And I, there's, I mean, this, we could talk about goal setting for like hours. So I'd recommend people probably have heard of this, but the book atomic habits by James clear just has so much great information. He's been on my podcast as a guest as well. Uh, that, that will definitely set you up. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Sounds good. Again, I'll link to all that below. Um, all right. So we kind of touched on this already, but it's that idea of like a growth mindset. Yeah. So the researcher who came up with this is Carol Dweck, and she wrote a book called Mindset that I recommend everybody pick up and read. The book is, so a growth mindset is believing that your effort will actually um, create positive results. So over time, you can get better at something, no matter what it is. And a fixed mindset is somebody that believes that if they, if they don't get it right, then it's validation that the, and proof that they're not good enough. So, so an example would be like, if you work hard at something and then you don't do well, then you just think you're not good at that thing. Like I'm not creative and that's just, I can't get better at being creative. I'm not artistic. I'm not smart. I'm not good at math. I'm not good at parking, like just make up like whatever it is. But there's so much research that shows you, you can get better at anything if you have the courage to work on it and to not look at, um, an outcome as validation of good or bad of who you are as a person and what you're capable of. And that kind of goes back to our discussion on failure is this is not, um, this is just a data point. It's not an end point. This is not just a judgment on who I am as a person. And that's really hard because as kids, we're, we grow up with this narrative. It's like, if you do something well, somebody gets really excited for you. Oh, you're so smart. And then you're afraid to take on new challenges because if you don't do that thing well next time, well, does that mean you're not smart? So yeah, it's it's something that I work really hard on, like in my communication with myself, with other people, and especially with my son. But um, you can have a growth mindset where you believe that you can work at something in one area of your life and get better. And you can have a fixed mindset in others. So I'll like, you can believe as an athlete, if I work hard, I'm going to continue to improve, but I'm bad at math and I'm always going to be bad at math. Like you could, you could believe that in two different areas of your life. And there's some really, if you just Google fixed versus growth mindset, there's some really interesting, um, images that come up with phrases and things that people with a fixed versus a growth mindset can say. And you, there's actually quizzes you can take. There's so much information online to see, you know, do I have a growth or a fixed mindset? And are there times in my life where I might feel like I have a growth versus a fixed mindset? Okay. So it's about kind of identifying that it's even there in the first place, because I think if you ask a lot of people, they'd be like, Oh yeah, I have a growth mindset. But then like, if you really dive into it, like having like what in which domains, which I find really interesting. Um, It's about, sorry, one more thing. It's about praising, it's about praising the effort, not the outcome. 
Okay. No, that's good. Um, so I'd like to uh, switch gears a little bit here and I'm going to be a little bit selfish, but I think some of the audience will benefit from it as well. Um, but I've really started to enjoy mountain biking a little bit more. Um, cool. Edmonton has some great trails along the river Valley here for anyone who's local. Um, and, but I'm quite a beginner. So I'm wondering, um, do you have any advice for new mountain bikers? So maybe just some of the most common mistakes beginners make. There's a lot of, uh, different things in mountain biking. Um, first I'll say with the aerobic training part, the biggest mistake people make is they go out and they ride their bike as hard as they can every single ride. And that's not the best way to improve, um, at your training. So make sure that like 85% or even up to 90% of your training is spent at like an easy aerobic pace where it's like comfortable for you. But then that other times, like where you're doing interval training or you're going hard, like be intentional about how you spend that time once or twice a week so that you can, um, really go hard when you need to go hard. And I'm sure as an athlete, you already know that, but that's, you know, a lot of people don't know that there's been lots of people that have said, Hey, let's go out for a ride. And they just ride as hard as they can. Um, so that's not the best way to train if you care about training, um, in terms of skill, it's about baby steps. And it's just, just like with what, with your sport, it's like, you would just go out and expect yourself to have all these advanced skills. It's like working on really small things repeatedly. And in fact, the research shows only 8% above your ability level is the ideal place to be. So just doing something that's a little bit harder, doing it with people that can help inspire you, not people that just show you how good they are, (laughs) that, that belittles your confidence. And also I would say, um, there's a lot of great YouTube videos and courses now out there, but working with a coach, like especially a skills coach, can really help inspire confidence because there's a lot of things. Mountain biking is a very technical sport. There's like equipment, there's tire tread, there's tire pressure. There's like where you're supposed to look, there's braking. So it can sound really overwhelming. So working with somebody one-on-one or just looking for information, um, and just picking one skill to work on. That's another thing. Like you could work with a coach and they'll have you work on like five different things. And then you get worse because you, your brain just can't handle it. So pick one small thing to work on every single ride and try not to worry about all the rest of the things. Okay. That's great. Actually. Um, one specific question is, and maybe we can touch on like the fear aspect of this as well, but like when you're looking down a hill and like, I know for me, I use the brakes way too much and it's part of just the, what's going through your head. You're just like, you freak yourself out. You get all psyched up. Do you have any advice for like, and it doesn't have to be specific to mountain biking, but for people, when they're like, they're feeling that fear, they're feeling their body tighten up. How do you relax and kind of, I guess, maybe not get over the fear, but like do something in spite of it. I love that you asked this question because if you feel really afraid, you probably shouldn't be doing it. That, that means it might be a little bit farther, like way more than 8% harder out of your uh, comfort level. And you mentioned your body, like you tense up, you stop breathing, and then that's going to make it a lot harder to actually execute doing that section. There are times where you are going to be a little bit nervous, but if you feel like literally afraid, that's probably not the best time to do it. So I would say a few things that you can do is number one, um, go with somebody that you kind of, and I mentioned this before, but somebody that you view yourself very similar in skill level to, and I do this, like I'm still pushing my skills. Well, not at the moment as a pre- you know pregnant, but <laughs> I'm still pushing my skills. And so I'll go with somebody where I think that we're about the same. And if they ride it, then it helps me feel more confident that I have the ability to do it too. And my husband's actually really great because we're really similar on the downhill. Um, so if he does it, I'll be like, okay, you know, what do you think? And he'll be like, oh, no, you're good. Um, so that really helps. Another thing that really helps is breathing. So if you, if you are at that point where you're like, I feel like I can do this, but I still feel really nervous, making sure that you're 
like slowly exhaling as you going, as you're going down the downhill, um, so that your body loosens up. It, it just tells your body, like everything is fine. Another thing is visualizing success. So if you're visualizing, if you roll into something and you're visualizing yourself crashing, that's probably not the day to do it. Visualize what success would look like going down that and the feeling of that in every single sense that you can come up with on that section. And then knowing the skills that you need to do it. Cause they're like, there's certain things like I've been working on drops and there's this one big drop I rode last year. And I was so proud that I wrote it because it was terrifying and I was able to do it. Um, but I did it like 10 times in a row and it still didn't feel any easier. So to me, it's like, there's a skill that's missing here. This should feel easier after 10 times. So I'm going to get specific coaching on that type of riding because I know that I'm, I'm missing a skill there. And so if you do it repeatedly and it still feels scary, that means that there's something missing. Okay, good. So really diving into the feeling and like analyzing a little bit. And I like that 8% rule. And I think, I think a lot of us think that, or me personally, I would have thought that you'd need a higher percentage to be improving, but 8%, like that's, it's a pretty small step. And I think that's important to remember. Yeah. I was surprised at 8% too. Uh, (laughs) I I think that actually came out of atomic habits, um, James clear book, but yeah, it's about just manageable challenges in order to improve. And there's also, Oh, I'm sure that you know this a lot in Muay Thai. It's like, you need to have a specific and helpful level of, of activation. So if you're like way too activated, you're like, you're too freaked out. You're too amped up. And if you're not activated enough, you're too just like chill. So it's like getting yourself to a point where you're at a really good level of activation so that you can perform. Yeah. I think they, I forget the name of it, but there's that like U-shaped curve where it's like, you have that optimal level of arousal for performance. And then if you get a little bit over, (laughs) you're not going to perform as well. And if you're not aroused enough, so likewise. So, um, as we wrap up here, um, we have to mention quickly that you're also a plant-based athlete. So I can't let you go without asking a little (laughs) bit about this. Um, but maybe just what are some of the benefits that you feel you get from eating this way? Well, the reason I changed my diet and I changed my diet in 2013 was because I wanted to prevent lifestyle diseases. I was really afraid and felt like I was, I I, I was just rolling the dice. Like, am I going to get cancer? Am I going to get heart disease? Like these are the the top killers of humans. And I didn't want to have my death be this like drawn out, horrible thing that was out of my control. And guess what? We're all going to die. It's all, it's going to happen to all of us, no matter how healthy you are but what kind of longevity, what kind of health span do you want to have? So I changed my diet for that reason. The athletic performance was a surprise. Like there wasn't, I didn't know any endurance athletes in 2013 that were, and there were, but I just didn't know of them that were doing the same thing that I was doing. So I slowly changed my diet. Um, I was worried that I was going to get slower, that I wasn't going to get enough nutrients, like all the things that people are afraid of, but I just ate a whole foods plant-based diet Um, I made sure that I was never hungry and I actually got faster. I went from like trying to get on the podium to winning races to recovering better. Um, I dropped a little bit of like, not a lot of weight, like five pounds, but five pounds makes a difference in mountain biking when you're riding up a hill and you're trying to get just 1% more performance. I dropped. So I leaned out a little bit. Um, that was all amazing. And then a really important thing that happened was I always had just weird relationship with food. Like, I like I was borderline bulimic in high school. I always looked at food as this like thing that was either for me or against me. And it just was a really difficult relationship. And ever since I changed my diet, it's like, I don't feel guilty about eating. I don't view food as good or bad. I just like enjoy eating. And it's not this weird, um, this weird, uncomfortable place. And I'm I'm not articulating that very well right now, but I, I just don't have, um, nearly as many issues around food anymore. And around my weight, like I used to be obsessed with my body weight. I, like I, 
I'm not, I like my weight doesn't fluctuate very much. I feel really good about how my body, about how my body looks. And when I look in the mirror, I feel good about myself. So yeah, there's, and there's a clarity piece that comes with eating plant-based because you have better blood flow. Your brain works better. Um, all the other things get better. So yeah, if you want to eat more plants, like a lot of times people are afraid of the label plant-based, like you don't have to put a label on yourself. You don't have to go hundred percent, but just adding in more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes will guaranteed make you feel better. <laughs> So many benefits. Um, and you actually have a cookbook as well. If people are interested, right? Yeah. It's called the plant powered Academy and you can get it at moxieandgrit.com or at my website, sanyalooney.com. It's the digital cookbook. <laughs> so I'm curious, uh, can you share your favorite pre and post-workout meal? If you have one, maybe you eat something different every time, but, uh, it's pretty simple. Uh, I love just eating toast with almond butter before mm-hmm. workout, or pancakes and syrup, which I had this morning, which is normally a weekend thing that we have at my house and post-workout. I just eat a meal. I just look in the fridge, what's left over. Like what, what's, what do we meal prep this week? And I just eat a meal. A lot of times people want to reach for a recovery drink and people are like, well, what's your favorite vegan protein powder? And th- that might work for some people. And some people might need that extra boost because they just are ha- having trouble eating enough. Um, but for me, I just like food. So <laughs> that's fair. No need to overcomplicate it. <laughs> Um, so I guess as we close out here, is there anything that I feel you feel like I should have asked you that I didn't or anything that you really want to get out there? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I just think if people can treat themselves with more kindness and others with more kindness and, um, just explore that curiosity and just maybe try that thing that they've always wanted to try. That's so important in your life. And, I think that listening to this podcast, there's so much information out there on how to push yourself a little bit and how to enjoy the process of that. I think that that's just really important. And then number two, um, the power of rest. Like you asked me the, uh, as a new mountain biker, like making sure that you take a day off, making sure that you rest when you're tired, just in general. Cause I think society is way too biased, uh, towards the hustle and hard work is important. You need to work hard to do well, but you also need to rest and knowing that rest is also part of the work. And all these things I've talked about today, these are not just like things I've been good at my whole life. These are all things that I have had to work at. So that's why I know so much about them. So I'm not perfect. These are all things that I'm learning as I go too. And I just want to bring everybody along with me and hopefully something that I said helped you today too. Well, you've had a very significant impact on my life and I hope people listening to this are just as inspired. And I really encourage anyone listening to check out your podcast, the Sonia Looney show. Um, you've interviewed some incredible guests. So, um, again, I'll link to that below. Um, I guess if anyone wants to reach out and connect with you, you're probably pretty easy to find, but where would you like to direct them to? You can find everything on my website, sonyalooney.com. There's a contact form there. I have a weekly newsletter that I work really hard on that comes out every Monday. And if you want to follow my day-to-day, Instagram at sonyalooney is probably the best place to do that. But I'm on all the social medias. (laughs) All the medias. Um, If someone, because you're a health coach as well, if someone would like to work with you, do you work with um, international clients or... Yeah, are you purely in Canada? Yeah. Yeah. I work with, uh, my, uh, certifications actually through the U S um, but I can work with anybody and there's a coaching tab on my website and there's health coaching, there's mental skills coaching. And then I also have the Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy, which is a course. It's an online course you can do at your own pace. Sounds great. Um, everyone uh, check it out if you'd like. And Sonia, thank you so much for being here. It's been a true honor. Thanks. It was so great to chat with you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the plant fueled podcast. Just a reminder, be sure to check out the show notes for all the resources mentioned and details on how to connect with our guest. 
If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and share the show with friends, family, or anyone else who may benefit. And one small favor, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a five-star rating or review wherever you are listening. It helps other people discover the show and spread this information. If you have any comments or feedback, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. Anyways, be sure to move your body, eat some plants, be grateful for the little things, and until next time.